Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Culture Wars. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I do appreciate you joining us again. So today we're going to just do a bit of a roundup of the Canadian political news. As most of you will know, Parliament is still closed because Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as is his wont, prefers to rule by fiat. It's been amusing, too, to see NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, do a whole lot of caterwauling about the fact that the Liberals won't listen to the NDP on this issue or that issue, even though the only reason that Parliament was successfully closed down is because Jagmeet Singh's NDP voted with Justin Trudeau. So really nothing going on in Parliament at the moment. The really big political news, at least at the federal level, is... Uh, Canada's failure to secure a seat on the UN Security Council. Now, most of you will know that there are permanent members on the UN Security Council, which was set up after the Second World War, and there are temporary seats. And, and those who fill those temporary seats rotate. And Canada has been seeking to get one of these seats for a very long time. And one of the primary reasons for this is because they really want to be seen as more prestigious on the world stage. And so Stephen Harper took a shot at getting a UN Security Council seat, and he failed in that attempt back in 2010. And that was used, actually, by the Liberals at the time to really declare that Stephen Harper and the Conservatives had embarrassed Canada on the world stage, uh, that it was time for, for Canada to get back uh, their sort of progressive credentials to to renew their reputation in the eyes of the world. And this was never really explained particularly well. Um, as a social conservative, I'm not a particular fan of Stephen Harper. I think that from a social conservative perspective, he actually left the country in worse shape. He gave us awful justices that uh, eliminated certain forms of religious liberty in the Trinity Western case that handed us euthanasia in the Carter case. Um, Justin, or Stephen Harper worked as hard as, as Trudeau does now to keep abortion off of the floor of the House of Commons and, in fact, voted against pro-life legislation himself many times. So I'm just getting that out of the way to, to highlight the fact that I'm not a Stephen Harper fan. At the same time, uh, Harper's foreign policy stances were one of the things I appreciated about him. He was the most loyal ally uh, to Israel. I remember when I was standing in line for a Marco Rubio rally back in 2016. I actually, I was, I ended up uh, for some reason standing uh, just in front of Aaron Shaviv, who was uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, campaign strategist. He was checking out different rallies uh, as sort of a, a sort of a trade show type thing, and he told me Stephen Harper was seen as Israel's best friend, whereas Justin Trudeau was seen by the Israeli government as something of of a disaster. But, uh, you know, Harper was tough on Putin, told Putin to get out of Ukraine. And, and I think everybody would or should agree that, that Harper had the gravita of a statesman on the world stage. And so I never totally understood the whole, uh, you know, Harper embarrassed Canada and Canada is back, Trudeau said when, when he got elected. I never really understood that attitude because I didn't know what we were coming back from. Harper seemed to be a perfectly competent man on the world stage. Uh, he defended religious liberty and he declined to fund... Uh, abortions in his maternity health care package, but even that was only because several people in his cabinet and in his caucus stood up and said, you know, it's one thing that you won't pass pro-life legislation, but to actively fund abortion is, is a thing entirely. So I'm not really sure what, what all that's all about. But all this brings us to the fact that, that Justin Trudeau laid out as one of his primary goals 
the to secure a seat on the U.N. Security Council. This was really going to distinguish his administration from Harper's. He was going to succeed where Stephen Harper failed. And this must be a pretty crushing humiliation uh, for, for Justin Trudeau because Harper, uh, after he failed in 2010, managed to secure 114 votes. And this week, Justin Trudeau only secured 108 votes, only 108 votes in his bid for a U.N. Security Council seat. He came in behind Norway and Ireland. And Paul Wells summed it up really well over at McLean's. He said, quote, Believing a win at the U.N. would fall from the heavens on Trudeau because he wasn't Harper was an expression of the narcissism and shallowness that have characterized this government during much of its time in office. Now, there are a bunch of reasons that we didn't get this seat. I think the first thing that we actually just have to state and put out there is that Canada is not a particularly powerful or important country. Uh, Canadian prime ministers like to say, as they have to say, that Canada is the greatest nation in the world, blah, blah, blah. But we're not really a consequential country. We haven't even been a middle power since shortly after the Second World War. Our military serves primarily at this point as, as a sort of uh, social experiment where LGBT diversity training is implemented. I've gotten emails from uh, two of the three branches uh, no, actually, all three uh, branches of Canada's armed forces and, and, and the, the, the training these people are subjected to is just a joke. And quite frankly, the, the major role that Canada plays on the world stage under Justin Trudeau is, is fun, funneling millions and millions of taxpayer dollars towards abortions overseas. I won't sort of belabor that point because I've done a, a whole previous show on Justin Trudeau's obsession with abortion. But Canada's basically known for projecting wokeness on the world stage. And as you might or might not know, an enormous number of, of world leaders are actually very socially conservative and are not in step with, with Justin Trudeau's urging uh, to, you know, get on board the LGBT bandwagon, to, to embrace abortion wholeheartedly. All socks aside, Justin Trudeau doesn't have a whole lot that many developing nations uh, are really asking for. And I think it also bears mentioning here, I think it's important to bring this up, uh, the Justin Trudeau has been an international laughingstock at a number of points during his tenure. Uh, Harper, again, I, I, I don't understand how anybody could say he didn't have gravitas on the world stage. But Justin Trudeau, on the other hand, there was first that people kind incident, which I'm sure you all remember, uh, which provoked global gales of laughter and triggered savage calms in the British press. Everybody just thought, hey, come on. You know, the fresh new Canadian prime minister is trying way too hard. Perhaps he's got to relax a bit. And then there was the India trip, which I'm sure you all remember, where even Indian celebrities came out and told the press that Justin Trudeau was apparently trying to be more Indian than they were. And he ended up looking like an Indian version uh, of the village people. And everybody appreciated the effort, I think, uh, with much snickering and even a few rude chortles from a few quarters. But even the liberals were forced to admit that the trip was an enormously high-profile embarrassment. And that brings us, of course, to the blackface scandal, which, again, I'm not going to belabor too much because I spent an entire uh, podcast discussing the blackface scandal. I don't think Trudeau is a racist, although there were videos of him cavorting around in blackface like a monkey that did... Uh, it's very best to convince me otherwise. Um, but keep in mind that when they asked him how many times he did blackface, uh, he either didn't remember or refused to say, neither of which are, are very positive indicators of his past discretion. And so keep in mind that after cultivating himself as the wokest of world leaders, this scandal hit headlines across the globe. It was in the BBC, it was on CNN, it was headline 
news around the world. And one of the reasons it was headline news is because Trudeau had put himself forward as, you know, sort of uh, this world leader who was the the heir apparent to to Barack Obama, uh, that in, in, a, in a world filled with angry populists, conservative populists, here was Trudeau. Uh, here to save the day, to save the international liberal order. And then it turned out that he was guilty of all of these things that nobody doubted for a second he would ax any of his colleagues for being guilty of. Nobody doubted uh, that Trudeau would have fired anybody who had done even one of the things that he did. And I think that by the time the scandal wound down, uh, nobody doubted that he believed so much in himself that he would flaunt the double standard and wear his hypocrisy proudly, that he was simply so narcissistic that he believed his own myth, that he was the solution to all of these problems, and therefore he could get a pass for you know groping a reporter. He could get a pass for wearing blackface when he was almost 30 years old. He could get a pass for these things because he was so inherently good and so inherently virtuous that by being Canada's prime minister, he would you know move the football on these issues. Now, keep in mind that Justin Trudeau didn't just do these things inside Canada. These things made global, international news. And so it's hardly surprising that a leader with a penchant for embarrassing himself so spectacularly and so frequently failed to achieve the respect necessary to secure a seat on the UN Security Council. Does anybody doubt that if Harper had made a single one of the mistakes that Justin Trudeau made, that Trudeau would be frothing at the cameras as we speak? You know, denouncing the irrevocable tarnish to Canada's international reputation. Nobody would question the fact that a leader exposed as a shallow man with a pension for costumes and blackface, pitching Canada's importance as a progressive voice, would be seen as anything other than a transparent joke. But Justin Trudeau and the Liberals keep on going. And apparently Canada is back. As There's been a, a dozens of jokes of this sort on Twitter, but I guess when Justin Trudeau said back, he meant back of the line, or way back. But we apparently can't even achieve what Stephen Harper did and what Stephen Harper achieved, according to Trudeau and the liberal luminaries, was an abysmal failure. So here we are. I actually, to be honest, think this is a good thing. I don't think Canada deserved a seat on the UN Security Council. I think that Justin Trudeau's voice and Canada's voice right now uh, is negative on the world stage. They're just trying to ramrod the LGBT agenda down people's throats. They're pouring millions, if not billions, of dollars into funding abortion overseas to help uh, impoverished women procure abortions. I have no desire for, for an administration, for a government that's pushing these sorts of things to have any more influence than it already has. And so I'm glad that Canada lost out. I think Justin Trudeau deserved the humiliation. And above all, I, I, don't, I don't have any confidence in his ability to, to learn from his mistakes. But I do think that even, even the press is starting to realize that Justin Trudeau was a paper tiger uh, and that his criticisms specifically of, of Stephen Harper were often sort of a joke. So moving on from that topic, I, I do want to very briefly uh, take a look at the reopening in Ontario. Um, those of you who have been following the COVID-19 lockdowns will know that I've been uh, I've been quite frustrated because there seems to be one set of rules for protests uh, that are um, supported by the elites. And there's been another standard for those who have been following the law and obeying the government policies up until this point. So we were told a very short amount of time ago that to leave our homes, uh, you know, stay home, save lives 
to you know have a family barbecue with more than a few people, to break social distancing rules, to gather in large groups. These things were literally murdering grandma. Right. This is what we were all supposed to believe. And and most of us uh, obeyed the rules. We like my family basically worked from home for a month. Um, my parents didn't see their grandkids for 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 four weeks or, or longer. Uh, we basically uh, took the government at their word. And then, of course, uh, we had the Black Lives Matter ex- thing explode. And suddenly everything changed. Suddenly, uh, massive protests are actually totally permissible because as one public health officer in Canada said, and I kid you not, you can't make this stuff up, racism is a public health crisis. They said that, of course, to cover up for the fact that uh, they were fining moms for taking their kids for a walk in the sunshine and giving people $1,000 fines for driving in a car with people they didn't live with 15 minutes before, but now thousands of people could gather in Toronto and on Parliament Hill, and that was okay. That was okay for one of two reasons. Either there was not a risk of catching COVID-19 from large gatherings, and this lockdown is the most economically devastating cock-up ever made by a Canadian government, or those large gatherings were risking lives, but... It turns out our leaders are totally all right with us risking lives if it's for a cause they support or they were simply too cowardly to tell the protesters that the rules applied to them as well. And so we ended up in a situation where so the Ottawa police announced they would not be handing out fines for the rally on Parliament Hill, which the prime minister then showed up for. He showed up and he took a knee so that everybody could see uh, precisely how woke he actually was. He wore a black face mask. I don't know what possessed him to choose that color considering his past, but he did. Um, The prime minister came out to show his solidarity uh, after calling off parliament. He's the prime minister. If he wants to do something about racial policies, why doesn't he recall parliament and go do some hard work uh, trying to find out how to get clean drinking water on reserves or something? You know, the reason the reason virtue signaling from leaders in his position is so nauseating is because they assume that by virtue signaling, they'll get a pass. Right. He's the prime minister. He doesn't need to virtue signal. He can actually go to his government and come up with actual solutions. But no, um, he attended what used to be an illegal protest. Uh, but the Ottawa government, the Ottawa police just said they weren't going to be uh, pressing any charges or or handing out any fines. This, of course, uh, after uh, police officers were checking who was going to parking lot church services and threatening to fine anybody who gathered to worship. So the uh, the double standard that's that, that's happened as a result of the Black Lives Matter protests has been devastating for the government credibility. Basically, at this stage, nobody really believes anything the government has to say. The uh, Toronto public health officer actually joined the Black Lives Matter protests. So at this point, we're stuck with either large gatherings risk lives, in which case our our government authorities were extraordinarily irresponsible in permitting these protests to go ahead, or uh, these large gatherings don't risk lives, in which case our governments have inflicted enormous economic damage on our country for no good reason and have curtailed our civil liberties and our freedoms for no good reason. So I don't know which one of those you want to pick, but neither of them seem to be uh, particularly comforting from my perspective and that brings us to uh, the churches starting to reopen in Ontario which is some really good news 
Uh, a lot of my friends have been going to church, at least in uh, in a limited capacity, in Alberta and British Columbia for a while now. I haven't been to church since March when the lockdown started, but now churches are allowed to open at 30% capacity. And what's really amusing is that um, commentator and uh, erstwhile Catholic Michael Corrin, who's now a, a, an Anglican deacon of some sort, and one of the... Uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a commentator who uh, consistently produces commentary that it looks like the Babylon Bee projecting headlines on progressive Christians, because you know that every single column is going to end up with a rant on on how big a fan he is of the LGBT community. Uh, he's going to uh, offer another apology for his past conservative sins while assuring the pride community that he is now on their side, and he'll hatefully attack those he now despises while claiming to do so in the name of love. This guy is like, he's like a Stephen Colbert of himself. He's he's hilariously amusing. And of course, of course, he came out and objected to the fact that the Doug Ford was reopening the churches because people of his sort uh, don't need church uh, very much. And of course, he managed to turn the article into a condemnation of those asking for the reopening of the churches because, of course, those who wanted to go to church again were hopelessly homophobic. Anyways, uh, if anybody wants to know uh, my opinion on, on Michael Corrin's analysis of both Christianity but also of social conservative issues, go to thebridgehead.ca. I've written plenty of columns on Michael Corn there. I want to just run for you a clip right here. Um, here's a clip from uh, Dr. Joe Boot of the Ezra Institute. He runs Westminster Chapel in, in Toronto. He's written a, a lot of great books. I've had the privilege of speaking on a panel with him uh, in the past on the issue of, of pornography. And he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's quite a, a distinguished Christian uh, thinker, Christian speaker, and he shares a little bit of the story of, of how uh, Ontario came to reopen churches at, at 30%. So just give this a listen. I thought it was a fascinating little inside glimpse into, into how this story actually unfolded. And I thought, I thought many of you would appreciate hearing it. I want to give you a very short illustration. And forgive me because it is partly about myself. Part of the reason we're here today is because... A few pastors challenged the government that they cannot treat the church of Jesus Christ as a non-essential service. So you may have seen it, but myself and a faithful brother in the Lord, who's a pastor in Windsor, Aaron Rock, wrote a letter to the provincial government. You can go and read it, www.reopenontariochurches.ca. And we spoke as faithfully as we knew how for the church of Jesus Christ. That the church cannot be dismissed as a non-essential service. That the church is ruled and governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. What you don't know is that after some conversations in the background, we got a brush-off letter. And there was a second letter. And in the second letter, there was, the, there was a description of the historical role the Church of Christ has played in the West, of the origin of our constitutional freedoms, of the Canadian coat of arms, of the charter, of our head of state, of what they swore to uphold and protect, of the significance and calling of the church in society and culture. And it led to, this letter led to a meeting that we were granted with 
senior officials in the office of the chief medical officer, including the deputy chief medical officer. A two-hour meeting for myself, this pastor Aaron Rock, two rabbis who we'd drawn into our campaign, Orthodox Jewish rabbis who were also campaigning to be allowed to worship in the city of Toronto, and a small handful of other pastors who joined us on the call and gave testimony about the significance and role of the church and what was happening in people's lives and their communities because of the lockdown of the churches. And I had an, a marvelous opportunity given to me by God to speak to all of these bureaucrats, these senior officials, about the significance of the claims of Jesus Christ. And then I said this to them. I said, if the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. And I said it twice. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. And we graciously and respectfully put them on notice that we answer first and foremost to the King of Kings. That was on the Friday. On the Sunday, I received a phone call from an MPP who I know well in the Ford government. He said, things are moving. It's had an impact. Policy's being drafted. You're going to hear Monday, 30%. And we did. Now, I don't tell you that to blow my own trumpet. You should know that I have a trumpet, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you that to blow my own trumpet. There's other faithful people around, and 450 churches almost signed our letter from across the province. But they wrote to us saying, thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for speaking out. That's just a small practical example of one way that we can witness to the truth to defend God's people and bring wisdom and guidance to government. Who says we can't do it anymore? Who says we can't be Nathan anymore? How do you know what God's going to accomplish? It wasn't us who did it. We could have been brushed off time and time again. They were, when we went into that meeting with those bureaucrats from the Ford government, they were talking about six to 12 months of the church's lockdown. That's, that was their position. Now, that's God. So that's uh, Dr. Joe Boot's account of, of how Ontario reopened the churches. And I think Joe Boot is a, is a great example of how to respectfully but firmly engage with the government on these issues. And I really appreciate the fact that he didn't lose sight of, of the basis and the roots of our civil liberties and also refused to back down because a lot of a lot of Christian leaders and pastors simply didn't know what to do, uh, especially now when it became apparent that the government had a double standard, uh, that large gatherings were permitted for, for rallies about racial injustice but were not permitted uh, to worship God. It was really, really hard to know how to push the government, if to push the government, when, when was it reasonable to start protesting restrictions. And I think uh, Dr. Joe Boot uh, and the campaign put together by himself and several others uh, did a phenomenal job, and I'm really grateful uh, to Dr. Joe Boot for that. I want to take a brief look at one final topic before I sign off here for this week. Some of you may have been following uh, the, the implosion of the mainstream media right now 
in the wake of, of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And it's been a fascinating thing to watch because you have these these liberal publications, these liberal outfits that are getting targeted uh, by by sort of the woke progressive young people inside their companies. And some of the accusations that are being leveled are, are stunning. So in the United States, we've seen this at the Philadelphia Inquirer. We've seen this at the New York Times, where uh, one editor actually was forced to resign over choosing to publish uh, a column written by Senator Tom Cotton advocating a response to, to the riots that was endorsed by 58% of the American public. We're seeing this happen happen all over the place now. Uh, another one, had the National Book Critics Circle has totally imploded. More than half the board has resigned, and it was because one one of the uh, the members of this organization felt that an email had been racially insensitive, and instead of working it out privately, screenshot the emails and, and threw them on the internet. This is happening increasingly, by the way. What we're seeing is is these woke young progressive uh, journalists or media employees. Uh, not working inside their organizations to improve things, to address uh, things that they see as problematic, but instead what they're doing is they're is they're advocating and they're calling on the mob to do the job for them. So they're doing things like screenshotting emails and putting them on Twitter, uh, of leaking private conversations, and basically the trust between sort of the old guard classical liberals who believed, however tenuously, in freedom of speech, and and the young intolerant progressives who actually believe that any disagreement with them amounts to hatred, amounts to bigotry, amounts to, to some, some phobia, and there are new phobias that we find ourselves guilty of all the time. And it's been interesting because the trust between, between the old guard and the new guard is, is utterly absent. And you can see this because uh, these, these young journalists are basically uh, attacking their bosses, attacking their colleagues, attacking longtime uh, media icons with with utter ruthlessness on social media. And the only reason they're doing this is because they know they can force those people to get canceled. So one of the crazy things that some of you might have seen is that Wendy Mesley of the CBC, uh, her show got suspended. Her future is in doubt. She's probably going to end up getting fired uh, because a unnamed colleague stated that in, in a conversation prior to a show on background, she used a racial slur to explain what somebody else had said. So she didn't use the pejorative. Uh, she didn't actually express this racial term herself. She just used the racial term. And now she's being damned as a racist. She's getting pushed out of her job. She's getting brutally attacked by progressives. And like, I want to make clear here, I don't like Wendy Mesley. She's a, a CBC host. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, she's, she's a CBC host. When she interviewed Jordan Peterson, she ran with all the smears and the libels about how he was encouraging the alt-right when, in fact, Jordan Peterson is, is robbing the alt-right. Uh, she was sort of that insufferable, run-of-the-mill liberal. Her colleagues say she was a nice person, but she was more than happy to believe the worst of conservatives and to interview them as if they were terrible people who needed to be exposed. So I don't like her, but to think that she's a racist and to see how fast this has caught on, the consensus among the progressive writers and journos on Twitter seems to be that Wendy Mesley of the CBC is a racist. And it's somebody with impeccable liberal credentials who obediently attacked conservatives has just gotten destroyed overnight. Like this casual smearing of people, and in this case, again, someone I do not like, is, is it's ugly and immoral. And the saddest thing for these liberals that are getting purged from mainstream media outlets by the wokelings is that nobody will care. 
Their colleagues will be quiet for fear of getting attacked themselves and smeared as racists or bigots. And actually only their despised former targets on the right will say anything about them getting fired. That must be a really bitter pill. It's only, you know, SoCon conservatives like myself, um, who I'm sure Wendy Mesley, if she knew, even knew who I was, would, would despise me and my views. But it's only people like us who say, come on. Mesley is obviously not racist. What's being done to her is unjust. But to be honest, most of us probably don't care. It's like the old joke, when a mongoose and a cobra fights, you don't really care which one of them that loses. When the progressives uh, go to war with the liberals, uh, you know, I, I can't really conjure up any sympathy. I just, I just think it's important to note how disgusting it is that people are being smeared uh, in terms that will stick with them for the rest of their life and in terms that I think are unfair. I don't think Wendy Mesley is a racist. Um, I think she's a liberal with the same amount of intolerance as most run-of-the-mill liberals do these days. But I, like the idea, the idea that anybody thinks that she hates black people or is it an actual racist? Like that's what kind of stuns me about how fast this happens. If you look on, if you look on Twitter and you look on social media, how fast this narrative that Wendy Mesley was a racist who deserved to lose her job cemented is just kind of crazy to me because surely anybody looking at the context would say okay even if she said something inadvisedly which all of us do right we're human beings we make mistakes we say inadvisant things uh and 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 that's just the way that's just the way human beings function but when you when you make something that's considered to be a faux pas and it means that people can attribute the worst possible feelings and ideology to you that's a pretty brutal world. Now you got Jody Porter, who was a CBC journalist specializing in social justice, uh, reporting from Northwestern Ontario. She's currently on leave. She's tweeting, get this, quote, We need change now. I stand with Jesse Wente, Christine Guenier, and all of my courageous colleagues who are confronting white supremacy within the CBC. And then she posted an interview with Jesse Wente on the media's lack of diversity. I, I turn on the CBC and half the time... It's, you know, about, you know, indigenous people who are also queer and enjoy music and things like that. Like, I'm not sure what exactly they want the CBC to turn into. Um, not that, again, I have much stake uh, in the future of the CBC. I, I would prefer to see the whole thing collapse and burn. We could all do with a lot fewer documentaries on drag kids and cutting edge news articles on, on how uh, polyamorous couples are weathering lockdown. But the idea that the CBC is is invested with white supremacy and people believe this stuff, right? Like you've got people actually saying that the CBC is a hotbed of white supremacy. What worries me about all of this is what we're seeing is is the the Overton window shifting so fast you can hear it screeching over. Right? If the CBC is a hotbed of white supremacy, uh, you know, what are people who are conservative? Um is there a worse term than white supremacist? I'm sure we're all going to find that out together. But what we're seeing is is liberal tastemakers that are beholden to sort of the progressive wokelings that are holding them hostage. And conservatism and true conservatives are becoming so foreign that basically every time Rex Murphy writes a column now, every time he trends on Twitter. Right, Rex Murphy has been around in Canadian media for a thousand years. Right. He did, uh, you know, check up on CBC. He's been writing for the National Post. He's been in pretty much every Canadian main, main Canadian poll. Uh, pardon me. Pretty much every single Canadian publication out there. Everybody knows what Rex Murphy thinks and where he comes from. But now now every single time he writes a column, he's trending on Twitter because his conservatism 
uh, which has been with us for decades, is apparently stunning. And by the way, this guy is so conservative that he actually made the case for Pierre Trudeau uh, as the greatest Canadian. But, you know, people who were a liberal 15 minutes ago are now apparently white supremacists. And Wendy Mesley is still grappling with the fact that apparently, according to some, she is a racist. And by some, I mean those who are currently dominating the discussion, which is just, it really does have to be quite brutal. Like, we now also have, like, just in the last couple of weeks, too, it's not just the CBC. CBC is the most egregious example of this. You've also got employees at the Toronto Star coming forward, saying they felt vaguely victimized. Uh, the Globe and Mail as well, apparently. And then you've got all of these media outlets um, obediently reporting on their own racism. Uh there was an article on Shadline called I tried to my I tried to talk to my bosses about racism at work by a former Globe and Mail uh, call it not colleague, pardon me, employee who actually claims the Globe and Mail is conservative, which is just ridiculous. If the Globe and Mail is conservative, I don't have I have no idea uh, what they think the rest of us actually are. But this is concerning just because uh, what what is considered beyond the pale is moving very, very quickly and in a way that makes me very, very nervous. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens because if if the CBC is, is infested with white supremacy, of course, my response would be, well, I guess we're going to have to defund the whole thing and just do without the CBC. So tragic, but this is why we can't have nice things. Um, I doubt, unfortunately, that that's going to be uh, the response to all of this, but it'll be interesting to watch the liberal struggle session continue as, as progressives accuse them of sins that they are used to accusing conservatives of but that's, uh, that's my sort of a half an hour update on Canadian politics, the UN Security Council seat, the reopening of the churches and how that came about, and the current civil war between progressives and liberals in Canadian media. I'm going to try to keep you all updated on, on Canadian politics more regularly here. I've been asked by several people to provide uh, sort of weekly updates and interviews that kind of uh, allow you all to avoid the Canadian mainstream media and just get a short summary delivered to you weekly. So I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed this. Please leave any uh, comments. Uh, if, if you had questions about anything I had to say or any insights of your own, I welcome those in the comments. Thanks for taking the time, and please do tune in again next week.